Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the Hut is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Hut Capital fund. Please note that Hut Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the companies, funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hutcapital.com. Welcome to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. Really excited to have with us today, Carlos Pereira, partner at Bitcraft Ventures. Bitcraft is a venture capital firm focused on the gaming sector and has a part of the firm that is also focused at the intersection of gaming and blockchain, which is where Carlos is focused. So thanks so much for joining us, Carlos. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So to get started, we'd love just to hear about your own background, introduction to yourself and how you got to be where you are today. Sure. I grew up in Brazil and moved to the U.S. for college. I studied political philosophy at the University of Virginia. I was a professional horse rider through school and before school and never thought I would have a real job. And then the reality of adulthood and student loans hit me and I figured I had to get a real job. A bunch of my friends were going into banking and consulting, which sparked interest in that direction. Ultimately, did a finance internship. And then when it came to time for a full-time career, I was very lucky to get started at Eldridge, which is an investment holding company founded by Todd Bowley, the current owners of Chelsea, but at the time he already owned a significant stake in the LA Dodgers and later on the Lakers, the Golden Globes, Hollywood Reporter, just a bunch of famous sports media entertainment assets, as well as large financial services companies. Eldridge was getting off the ground in early 2016. So I was fortunate to be one of the early team members there, worked in a bunch of broadly syndicated credit, eventually doing more high yield credit, and then private equity and growth. And then in 2018, I think Todd, as an owner of the Dodgers, and as a father of teenage sons, started seeing his audience at the Dodgers getting a little bit older and his children really playing a ton of video games. And it sparked in him a question around how future generations would consume entertainment, right? And what was beyond there other than traditional sports, which is, I think, where a lot of his focus had been up to that point. I've always been a huge gamer. I've always really loved playing pretty much everything, but a lot of shooters and RPGs. And it's like a lot of my entertainment times growing up and to this day. And so I raised my hand to help the organization figure out how to expand into gaming, which ultimately culminated in us doing a handful of early stage deals between 2018 and 2020, as well as a growth investment into Fortnite or into Epic, the the makers of Fortnite. And that really was it for me. I was really enjoying how I was spending my time in terms of domain and content and people, right? Like spending a lot of time with young people talking video games just felt like more edge for me than traditional private equity, trying to figure out how to talk about golf and other things that I really don't have any perspective on. And that's just like what I wanted to do. And so there was a company in my portfolio in the video game space that was in trouble. I wanted to have a bit of an entrepreneurial perspective as well. So I left the board, joined the team full time, spent a year there trying to pivot the business, help the management team focus both the product and the cost structure. And then coming out of that experience, had already known the guys at Bitcraft for 
quite some time at that point, like two, three years, and I'd always looked up to them as the tier one, eight player in video game dedicated funds. At that point, they had seen me both as a co-investor and as a board member and as an operator in one of their companies. And I think we had a lot of trust and desire to work together. And so very quickly, an opportunity appeared for me to join the team, join the team initially on the Web2 side back in 2021. We were beginning to deploy out of our first crypto fund, which made its first investment in March of 2021. And eventually started spending more and more time on the crypto side, thought that there was an opportunity for me to be focusing substantially all my time in it. And that in turn culminated with me being given the opportunity to lead our Web3 strategy as we raised our larger token fund too, which we began deploying out of in August of last year. Wonderful. So we'll get back to that in a minute, but I don't talk to a lot of VCs who used to be professional horse riders. What kind of horse riding did you do? So I did show jumping. My dad was a professional and my mom is a serious amateur and my little brother is a professional. So it's a big family thing for us. I never had any other sport growing up. I was never allowed to have any other sport. I think I would have gotten disowned if I said I wanted to play soccer or something. And so that's all I did for a long time. Kind of went to school with the goal of just checking the box of school because I was definitely going to go be a professional athlete and never worry about school things again. And did that through college and then took things a different way. But it was a big part of my life for a long time. Okay, that's really cool. And you mentioned you're a big gamer. What's your favorite game personally that you've played historically? I think my favorite game ever is a game called Sekiro, which is by a company called From Software. It's a Japanese company. And it's just an excruciatingly punishing game that requires a lot of basically memorizing boss and enemy move sets in what ends up being a mixture of a finely orchestrated dance and combat with blades. That's cool. I have no idea what that is, but I look forward to checking out later. So <laughs> so for BitCraft Ventures, for those who are not familiar, can you give a little background on the firm and history and what the firm looks like today? Sure. So BitCraft was started in 2016 by a gentleman called Jens Hilgers. Jens was one of the co-founders of ESL, which is the largest esports. Started as like an event production company, and nowadays they have some of their own owned and operated events, but a pioneer in the esports space. Jens had his first partial exit with ESL around 2016, maybe 2015. And he had a vision for investing in businesses that he felt were missing in the broader esports space, right? So he was coming from a production company. And I think he saw needs around data for betting and merchandise and teams and all of that stuff. And so he went on to co-found G2, which was one of the top five, top 10 esports teams globally, like one of the winningest teams across most major games like Counter-Strike and the League and Rocket League and everything else. He was doing this incubator type vehicle by himself from 2016 to 2018. And then some of our anchor LPs in his relationships gave a push to approach investing in games in a way closer to traditional VC with a larger Series Seed, Series A fund. He brought on board his two co-founding GPs, Malta and Scott, who both were seniors at MTG, who had acquired ESL, as well as Martin Garcia, who joined, I think, shortly thereafter as our COO, CFO, who has been in venture, I think, for the majority of his career. And so we raised the first fund of $165 million in 2018. And today, the platform is about $825 million at AUM, of which two-thirds is traditional Web2, one-third is Web3 primarily investing in Series C and Series A companies in the broad video games, interactive entertainment segment. And so not just games, but things that are gamified and the technology that makes it happen. Okay, wonderful. So as you mentioned, BigCraft started as a traditional gaming firm, remains to be today, but also has a part of the business focused on the crypto blockchain space. So 
why did you guys decide to branch into this emerging category and not just stick with traditional gaming? The core tenet of our thesis is that we believe in the emergence of a synthetic reality. And that's this belief that as society evolves, there's increased space for a reality that mixes both the digital and the physical. We spend a lot of time in digital places. We care a lot about our digital appearance and friendship and status and assets and all as much about the digital aspects of ourselves as about the physical ones. And I think that if you contrast that belief in the emergence of a synthetic reality with thousands of years of human civilization, what we've seen is in general, when economic systems went from being tightly controlled, centralized, for example, kingdoms where property rights were basically highly concentrated or Soviet or like communist regimes where property rights and commerce rights were heavily concentrated and belonged to the state, that when people are given property rights and commerce rights, then they tend to be more entrepreneurial. Economies grow when people are allowed to own them. And so for us, if we believe in the emergence of a synthetic reality, then I think we have to believe in the emergence of digital property rights or digitally native property rights for digital environments. When you contrast that to so many MMOs or massive multiplayer online games that have vibrant digital economies, oftentimes black market against the terms of service and nonetheless flourishing digital economies where people buy items and gold and get someone to help them beat a tough boss or something like that. And so for us, the opportunity is one of leaning into patterns of play that we think are actually quite established within video games as a segment, and also patterns of economy building and just the entrepreneurship that is inherent to the human spirit that have been around for thousands of years longer than that and have nothing to do with gaming. And I think when people go in a new category, it can be push versus pull, right? So one would be, hey, this is a new area. Let's go spend time there. The other would be your founders and games that you're talking to saying, hey, we're going to incorporate blockchain and NFTs and we're doing this. Which way did you guys see it that led you to move into this space? Probably a little bit of both. We certainly started getting pitches. And I think a lot of the early pitches didn't fully make sense to us, primarily because we were dealing with an earlier stage of gaming where a lot of the content was quite rudimentary, right? I think a lot of the content is still rudimentary today and we're beginning to see more exciting products come to market, at least like visually or mechanically more exciting products come to market. And so for us early on, we started seeing things that didn't look that interesting, but then the market demand for them was actually quite high. I think, you know, Jens has spoken openly about how Axie Infinity certainly didn't make a lot of sense to him. He didn't really understand why people would want to transact with each other and collect these characters and all that stuff. And obviously, especially, you know, in the bull market, people did. But even today, right, there's still a lot of people that are engaged in that ecosystem. And so for us, it was a bit of a pull from getting these pitches and matching that with a push of, I think, across the team, some of us have gotten scammed trying to sell something on RuneScape and trying to do it through PayPal. And some of us have tried selling armor on World of Warcraft and all that stuff. And I certainly may or may not have sold accounts in an MMO that was popular when I was in high school or middle school. And so for us, like there's also just a lot of experience trying to transact in games with more IRL implications and being frustrated by the infrastructure at hand. Yeah, it makes sense. And for BitCraft, are there certain kind of games that you guys are most interested in? I mean, I guess one category would be kind of play to earn versus more traditional high quality games. Within gaming, there's a bunch of different categories of different types of games. Are there certain parts of the space that interest you guys the most? So within the context of our Web3 strategy, what we talk a lot about is this notion of uh, crypto genre fit. And so it's understanding 
first, is this game exciting or not? And then what's the opportunity for crypto to take this thing further to make it more exciting? The way that you can visualize our quadrants for crypto genre fit is you can imagine an x-axis. On the left side, you have hyper-casual games like Candy Crush. And on the right side, you have very deep games like EVE Online or World of Warcraft. And then your y-axis on the bottom of it, you have simple crypto economies. For example, your rare items or NFTs. And then on the top end, you have complex crypto economies with, for example, both a fungible token and a non-fungible token, and sometimes even two fungible token models. So if we start on the first quadrant on the top left, those are high economic complexity and low game depth. And we think that that's the rest in peace category. We think that that's a lot of what the market saw in the early play to earn era, where these experiences were heavily financialized, but there wasn't a lot of game there to sustain an economy. And for us, you can't strap a deep economy on top of a shallow game. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It's like putting a rocket engine on a Fiat Pinto. And then below that on the second quadrant, so the bottom left quadrant would be simple games with simple NFT or crypto implementations. For us, that's the why bother bucket because we just don't know that there's enough innovation there to make it exciting from a venture returns perspective. I wouldn't be surprised if there's interesting games that do something there and maybe people make a little bit of money, but it just doesn't seem like where we should be mining for fund returners. And then one quadrant to the right on the bottom right side, third quadrant is where you have simpler crypto implementations with mass market potential, exciting games. And that's where I think the Web 2.5 experience lives. So this idea of a game that is basically a free-to-play game. Most people will never interact with crypto, but the highest spending ones, for example, may like your whales. And I think that innovation there looks like linear, continuous innovation. It's a game that is substantially similar to games that we have seen before. It will monetize in substantially similar ways as we've seen these things monetized before, but perhaps it monetizes a little bit better or it retains a little bit better. And a lot of times margins, net margins in games can be thin. And so if you're doing like a 10% improvement in your retention on the far out part of the curve, or you're doing a 30% improvement in your ARPU, those can actually be quite meaningful, right? Especially if you're reinvesting into growth. So those are the Web 2.5 experiences. And then on the top right quadrant, fourth quadrant, those are Web 3 native experiences. And that's where it's really hard to not engage in the crypto side of the element if you're playing the game. And we think that the baseline case for those opportunities that they will be higher LTV, lower volume, to think about like the traditional price versus volume analogy, whereas like Web 2.5 can be high volume, low price. Web3 native can be low volume, high price, just because it's a higher barrier to entry. But of course, if we see something that is still very Web3, but can abstract it enough and unlocks a new pattern of play, then that's probably like the huge home run, right? Where you have both high volume and high price and you end up creating something fantastic with multiple fund return potential. Yeah, thank you. That's a really cool way to think about that. So I mean, there's a lot of talk about the intersection of crypto and gaming, but why is that the case? Why does crypto and blockchain infrastructure make sense in the context of gaming? And how are gaming studios and people making games actually incorporating blockchain and NFTs into their games? It's hard for me to imagine a category that has better product market fit for crypto than games. Like for example, right now, a lot of people talk about real world assets. And I think real world assets is interesting because you can go and you can try to tokenize real estate or sort of create better financial rails for all these real world assets. But real world assets have different, oftentimes different institutional counterparties. You have inherent challenges in custody, right? It's very hard to do decentralized custody of a 
building. And you contrast that with gaming, which is a 320-ish billion dollar market. A lot of that market is the purchase of digital goods for digital status, oftentimes with digital currency, although in that context, more like game currency, right? Soft tokens and things that are sort of one directional, right? You buy your Roblox coins, you spend your Roblox coins, it's difficult to get money out. And so for us, you have a preponderance of digital assets and people that care about those digital assets because they live effectively in digital societies, micro societies where they have their game and the people that they care about and they want to look good, feel good play good. And so for us, it's just an opportunity to meet the consumer where the consumer is to go to a world that's already predominantly digital. And that has these patterns of play. Like every time we have seen a great game get connected to the internet or just be connected to the internet, every time a black market always emerges, even if there was basically no intent of having a market around that game. And so, for example, Elden Ring, which was the biggest release of last year, Elden Ring is a single-player game. It's really about you going through this 80 to 120-hour journey. It's from the same people that made that game I mentioned earlier called Sekiro. It's very hard. It's very punishing. A lot of time ends up being spent trying to get items and just getting strong to beat a boss. And Elden Ring also has a small player versus player mode. And what happens because it has this small player versus player mode is now I was watching a lot of YouTube to figure out how to beat the bosses. And within two weeks of the game coming out, the ads that all the YouTubers were running were ads for black market item and gold marketplaces that people were using the PVP functionality, hopping on a lobby for like me to fight you. And then I just drop my items on the ground and you pay me on PayPal and like disconnect. Right. And so It's pretty interesting that you always have this flow of value between time-rich, cash-poor users and time-poor, cash-rich users every time you see a game connected to the internet. I think there's challenges of making that work. Designing an open economy is fundamentally different than designing a closed economy, and like we spend a lot of time on that. But certainly, the pattern of play is there. The pattern of people wanting to transact and people wanting to grind levels and grind gear and sell gear has been around for a very long time. The assets are digital. There's a lot of status-based consumption in digital environments, which I think is great when you want to have digitally enforceable scarcity, for example, so you can say, hey, I should spend $2,000 in this armor because it is rare and I'm the one that owns it and belong to someone famous before, right? Like all that type of stuff. So for us, it's just like a very natural fit for what smart contracts and digitally enforceable scarcity and everything else open up for us. Yeah, that's really cool. And I guess once we no longer need to utilize these black markets, do blockchain-based games typically provide marketplaces for their users, or is there going to be some kind of central marketplace where people trade these in-game items? I think the jury's still out. Certainly, once upon a time, when OpenSea was worth $13 billion or whatever their last round was, I think that people believed that NFT marketplaces were going to, one, be extremely large, and two, would be able to charge a very high take rate, like a, just a royalty right or commission. Blur launched the royalties down to zero, no fee model, etc. Everyone can just move the asset from one marketplace to another. All of a sudden, no one is charging fees anymore. Now everyone's business models are broken. No one knows how these marketplaces are going to make real money. And it can be a difficult experience or just like a more frictionful experience if I'm playing a game and I want to sell something and I go on OpenSea and whatever. So what then that unlocks are all the marketplace aggregators, which basically try to unify liquidity so that you can just go in one platform and you'll have access to the liquidity of Blur and OpenSea and like all that other stuff. And I think that probably the next evolution of that will increasingly be marketplaces that sit within the game. Now, whether, for example, someone will 
leverage immutable technology or some white label provider, or they'll build their own. I think most people are probably better off just using white label or tech that's out there. But I think that we'll start thinking about the incentives where, look, you can try to figure out how to make NFTs non-transferable. There's soulbound tokens, there's all this stuff. I think that that would be counter to the spirit of what we're trying to do in crypto to just go full circle and then like make these digital assets that you can't move anywhere. And then it's like, what's the point of property, right? So I think like probably what a more reasonable outcome will be, will be that games will have incentives for you to trade in their marketplaces. And so for example, one of the teams in our portfolio that we've been talking about exactly sort of like this issue or this business model evolution with, their idea is you'll use materials to craft items, upgrade items, et cetera. And if you sell an item in their marketplace that you crafted, or your crafting materials would be refunded. And if you want to take this to OpenSea, then your crafting materials would not be refunded. And so there's like a tax, right? By virtue of burning your crafting materials or not. I think that you'll also see just explicit taxes, right? Where it's like, you can move your asset, but you pay a 10%, 5% tax to move it outside of the system. I think there's all sorts of solutions that will focus on that, right? Of like how to provide a benefit, whether cost side or, or something else, rewards, points, affinity, all that type of stuff that rewards a user for transacting in a place that you can control the royalty versus taking it to the current state of the NFT platforms where you can transact royalty-free. And that really breaks the model for how the platforms make money or how the game makers make money if they can't charge a royalty. Yeah, absolutely. So theoretically, the idea of wanting real ownership over these in-game items shouldn't be cyclical in a crypto cycle sense, but humans are emotional. Have you seen a change in interest over the past 18 months from founders and gaming studios to build blockchain and NFTs into their games? Yeah, I think it's easy to be in crypto when everyone is telling you that you're the smartest person in the world for being in crypto, right? I certainly have gone through my own journey as an investor was like, go back two years ago and say you're running a crypto fund and everyone wants to talk to you at the party. And like now people are like, God bless you. And they do the sign of the cross. It's like, oh, you're in crypto. Jesus, how's that going? And so the same impacts founders. And if it gets harder to get money, if he sees you're pulling out of the space, like why bother, right? Like why bother trying to climb this super tough mountain? Now, what I think happened for us is even though our top of funnel pipeline is probably down, geez, I don't know, 70%, 80% from peak, our actionable opportunities have not moved a ton, especially in the last 18 months. We've been deploying capital extremely consistently over the last 18 months because we were generally selecting for people that would have built regardless of the state of the market. And so we still get a steady stream of net new entrepreneurs less than the last two months than probably from month 18 to 16, right? Like going back in time, but certainly like there's still a good stream of net new entrepreneurs. And I think that most of the people that pivoted away from it are frankly in AI today, right? And now they're doing an AI game or an AI, whatever, right? And they're going to chase like whatever the next thing is after that. And I think it's a blessing to have less time getting sucked into top of funnel where you're trying to validate whether people are truly interested in doing something special and more time to just have five, six, 10 calls, spend two months in DD, making sure that we're placing the best bets we can. Yeah. So it sounds like there's still strong interest in terms of new founders, new studios, new games being built in that sense. But how are kind of like large established gaming companies and studios feeling about this category these days? Several of them have invested in our funds. I think that there's like a lot of curiosity. We have great relationship with strategics. I think I can think of a couple of other crypto native funds, particularly in Asia, who have really strong strategic relationships with, for example, the South Korean gaming companies and all that stuff. 
we're seeing a lot more interest in Asia than in the U.S. companies. I think that makes sense with regulation. I think that also makes sense if you reflect on, you know, South Korea was the place for gaming back in the 90s and early 2000s with the PC generation. And they kind of missed the early boat on mobile and then they're catching up. And I think that there's like a sense of not wanting to miss the next big thing, right? And so you just see a lot more interest. You see teams coming out of pretty much all the major companies. And then in China as well, right? You have the exterior, which is related to Fun Plus, And there's a couple of other initiatives going on there. In the US, I think that they're very cautious. You have Zynga with the Sugar Town, and then you have some other people sort of around the ecosystem. Ubisoft has their partnership on the IP side with uh, Assassin's Creed, but it's way more cautious. It's way more focused on third parties. Maybe they'll let you use their IP, but like they're not going to be too hands-on. And I think that that's expected with the state of regulation. And I also think that that's the opportunity, frankly, from an exit perspective for the venture cycle we're in now, right? I think that as you get success cases for crypto games, I don't think that the large companies will be like, oh, okay, like let's go figure out how to build their own team from zero to one. I think that that will spark a boom and M&A activity, particularly for the teams that are good, but not amazing, right? Like for the teams that are ready for an acquisition versus have an awesome game at scale that they would just be better off keeping on their own. And we'll see how that plays out. But certainly, especially for the American companies, I think the regulatory environment still needs to evolve a good bit. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So you talked about the ability to really own and trade digital items in a way that hasn't been historically feasible. Are there other benefits to building on blockchain or utilizing NFTs, like other new behaviors or ways you build economies? Are there other benefits of using this technology besides just being able to own the items that are in the game anyways? I think there's consequences of owning items. Like when I imagine, especially for that Web 2.5, more linear evolution of gaming experience that I described earlier, I think of a successful game today, like a game is basically like the self-contained product and all the value is mostly being captured and generated within the game, right? Like it's all in the financials of the company in a way. And maybe there's like a little bit of people making money on the side. We've had conversations with an awesome team of this MMO that has 20 years of history on it still active, still a successful game. And they were telling us that the black market is 100% the size of the white market. And they know, and it is totally against the terms of service, and they have no desire to enforce against it and crush the black market because the black market is essential for the player experience. And then on top of the black market where people are selling game items and currency and whatever else, The most successful guilds in this game, the most successful groups of people in this game employ IRL full-time labor. Like they have dedicated IT support and maybe like a manager person that like tracks the PL of the guild and like does some fancy logistics basically around it. And so for them, as they think about the opportunity in crypto, the opportunity is to now create a protocol or an ecosystem that allows for all of that value to actually be captured because now it is legal to build on top, right? And so to go back to that notion of like economies grow when entrepreneurship is something that is allowed and something that is frowned upon. The opportunity once people can own assets is that you can now build a business on top, which is an asset marketplace. Now we spoke about earlier, like fee capture, value capture and asset marketplaces being so-so. So we'll see how that one plays out, right? But for example, you have the people trying to figure out like asset landing, 
which TBD if that works out, right? But like these are all ideas that once you allow for assets to move around and people to own their assets, businesses are built on top. And so now instead of the value of the game, of the content being this sort of self-encapsulated sphere, I think of it as an inverted pyramid where the game sits on the bottom of the pyramid. And then you have layers of value that can be built on top of the game through people being entrepreneurial and figuring out ways of extracting value that are fair and allowed and compliant. And then the studio or the publisher of the game can in turn tax all those different layers in different ways and sort of openly work with the community versus sort of turning the other way because they like that that thing exists, but they can't officially acknowledge it because it would be some regulatory issue, right? So to me, that's kind of the opportunity is one of them. I think another is, you know, it's funny with gaming, a lot of the people that are against crypto games and against this notion of play to earn games, which like, I don't think play to earn games are a genre. I think this is like a the horrible thing that people wasted a lot of time on trying to like pretend that this thing is a genre. I think play to earn is an emergent property of a game that has product market fit and a few people will get to earn there. I think that's existed for a long time, but you know, people will be like, Oh, play to earn is awful, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, okay, like, what do you like? And it's like, I like Roblox. And it's like, well, like for a few thousand people, Roblox is play to earn. They go there to make experiences and make games and make items. And like, they're certainly playing to earn, although not as much play when you're sort of like labor and you're creating things, but certainly like that game, the rise of UGC, some people are doing user-generated content because it's fun and they just want to share it with friends, but some people are approaching it as a business opportunity. And you have seen the business opportunity emerge and, and even be venture funded, right? You have UGC dedicated studios that are venture funded by large organizations like us. We have one in our portfolio and Andreessen has one in their portfolio and Makers has one in their portfolio. And so for me, it's like this opportunity around UGC on steroids because you can make it and you can transact and it's like you can build businesses and not just content and way more platform level flexibility. And then within the world of on-chain games, you have modding on steroids because you can effectively fork the logic of a game that all exists on chain and do your own thing or just build smart contracts into the game and add on to the game and make a game bigger. And so that's like a super exciting area that we don't know exactly what's going to happen with it yet, but we spend a lot of time thinking about. And so I think that the opportunity is that once people own things, people do business, right? And I don't think that we know the answer for everything that will get done, but I just have a lot of faith from a first principles approach that when men left the cave and got property rights, all of a sudden all these businesses that exist today were created. And I don't think that anyone forecasted all this stuff going on, right? Like society was very simple economically in the early days. And now it's very complex. And I think it's because people are allowed to do stuff, both from like a regulatory, legal and infrastructure setup. And I think on the infrastructure side, when you have layers that are composable, like open source is great, right? Open source has had this huge moment in the internet over the last, whatever it is, 20 years because it's transparent and people can find bugs and people can sort of use open source software to be inspired and build other things and whatever. Composability is the next evolution of open source because not only is the code open, it's in a public blockchain, you can see the smart contract and see all that stuff, but you can also just build software that interacts with it, smart contracts interact with it. Then you can start linking all these different primitives. Like you see it in DeFi, you can link the lending platform with a marketplace type platform and then with a staking platform and you can sort of make all these products work together and create businesses on top, right? And so it's like you allow people to be entrepreneurial and then you give them infrastructure that allows that entrepreneurship to be way more 
efficient and connected and interesting. And then you sit back and you say, let's see what comes out of it. But it seems like in general, these things have been for upside positive or plus CV when we let people do their thing. Yeah, that's really exciting to think about. And you mentioned, I think, forking the logic of like an on-chain game. Do you guys invest in like fully on-chain games or not? We have one investment so far, a company called Playmit that we invested probably two and a half years ago at this point. I may be wrong on the exact timeline, maybe two years ago. They're awesome. A team of really experienced gaming entrepreneurs. What I personally love about what they say is they'll always talk about how they're excited to solve new hard things versus old hard things, right? They talk about how they've spent all this time working on known hard problems in Web2 games, and now they spend their time just trying to solve new hard problems, right? And that innovative spirit and all that stuff. And they've done really interesting things on the technical side. They've shipped numerous games. It's all one big experiment that I think has good directional progress with it, both on the technical side and on the game side. We have looked at a lot of these things. Actually, one of our team members has recently finished building his own on-chain game as part of a research piece that he's writing on the infrastructure stack and basically like the challenges, which ones work better for which things. Two of our guys at DevConnect in Istanbul right now, when Nico is always speaking on panels and has an awesome reputation when it comes to on-chain games, CCP, the makers of EVE Online have a public blockchain-related project. They haven't told too much more than that, but they did a hackathon to explore some of the technology that they've been building around crypto. And we had one of our guys in the hackathon. And so like, we spend a lot of time trying to think about it. Frankly, the biggest challenge we have is it's an area that a lot of people get excited about. I think a lot of what's exciting and allowed DeFi to expand so quickly was the composability. How easy was it for people to link these money Legos together and build complicated, innovative, interesting, exciting financial systems? And I think a lot of people look at on-chain games the same way, where it's like, we're going to have gaming Legos that are going to be fully composable and we're going to build awesome things on top, which basically biases investors towards an infrastructure mindset when looking at it. And I think people in general are willing to pay up on infrastructure versus content because there's a I think in large part an illusion of diversification versus a reality diversification, but certainly a lot of people think, oh, this on-chain gaming tech is going to be infrastructure and it's going to be diversified and it's not single content risk and you can price it pretty highly. And then you have a handful of funds that are pretty excited in the category that are very large, I would argue, price insensitive funds. And you contrast that with the reality of where we are, which is still a lot to figure out. Like we still haven't seen a game that's smooth and looks good because there's limits to how much data you can efficiently process on chain. And so for us, this is a time where I think we would love to be doing pre-seed deals of one to two and a half million dollars and sort of bright young teams trying to figure it out. And then you sort of hit product market fit and some idea around monetization or something like that. And you fund it more. And the market right now is well off, I think, of that experimentation phase where there's just a very strong bid. And that makes it hard for us to deploy, frankly, as much as we would like to, based on our perspective on risk, reward, and value. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Have you played your colleagues' on-chain game that they built? Yeah. How is it? Not to put you on the spot. (laughs) I played the pre-alpha of it. He decided to build this game because there's a YouTube video that this mobile gaming company did. So it's talking about something like the game that almost destroyed our office or whatever. And it was like, basically it was a game that a lot of people started conspiring against each other's back. They had a 24 hour turn. It's almost like a naval warfare game. If you're close to another ship, then you can 
fire at them. But if you're close to another ship, they can also donate ammunition to you. And then you can just focus on a different enemy. And what happened was people would only get to make one turn for 24 hours. But outside of those 24 hours, they were scheming in the back room and deciding like, oh, let's focus all of our resources. Let's go after that guy or that girl. And then all of a sudden, people are getting really pissed off with like the politics and the alliances and all that stuff. Sadly, we haven't had the chance to get angry at each other over the politics and the alliances yet. So like we've played the nautical battle aspect of it, but we were doing short turns to allow us to just test the game, right? Like, is it working? Is it smooth? And I think that that game inherently needs the long turn time so that we can allow people to backstab each other and scheme for 23 hours and then just like make a move, right? And so we're not testing at the phase where I would expect the game to be fun yet. We're testing at the phase that we're thinking about the tool set and and all that stuff. And, And really, that's the purpose of the exercise, right? Like Ben is engaged in this exercise because we're spending a lot of time on on chain game infrastructure. And we're thinking about like, what infrastructure choices make sense? And what are the trade offs and all that stuff? And if all of a sudden, he started spending 80% 80% of his time figuring out how to make the core loop fun, he'd probably be better suited working somewhere else, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like for the benefit of the culture of BitCraft Ventures and Team Dynamics probably shouldn't play the fully baked game in its full glory anyways. So changing topics a bit, if you're building blockchain-based games, you need a blockchain. Where are you seeing games building? Like what blockchain infrastructure kind of, what's the tech stack from a blockchain perspective? that you see that's most prominent or kind of curious for your thoughts there? Immutable, I think, has a significant foothold in the industry. They're a portfolio company, so obviously we're biased here, but they've survived, keep surviving through a bear market. They've added awesome games. I think there's network effects around a bunch of games building on the same place. They partnered with Polygon earlier this year, which was an important step as those companies oftentimes competed a little bit with each other. So now there's a much more focused joint effort between Polygon and Immutable. And that takes care, I think, of the Ethereum layer two uh, ecosystem, especially on the zero knowledge roll-up space. We are seeing Optimism do a push on the optimistic roll-up space. They had an announcement with Lattice a couple of days ago. Ryan Wyatt, who was at Polygon, just joined there. Ryan was a former head of gaming at YouTube, so an advisor for us as well. So they'll make a push. Aptos and Sui have been active. They've signed some interesting projects. I don't think we've seen as much from them yet, which is not a testament to anything wrong with them. It's just like they're a newer chain, right? So they've been doing their push a little bit earlier or later. Solana has survived the bear market and it's back up, which I think a lot of people didn't expect from it. I certainly didn't expect from it. So maybe we'll see more activity there. I think there was activity there early in the bull market. And then that all got flushed primarily to Aptos and Sui because of the move language compatibility with Rust, right? And so it was easy for Solana developers to move into Aptos and Sui or easier. So we'll see what happens there. Ronin has increased chatter. They have one new game called Pixel that I think has some interesting activity around it. They've been active trying to get games to build and leverage the Axie community and Axie ecosystem, which transferred over to Ronin or exists alongside Ronin. And so like to be helpful on the distribution side. So those are probably some of the ones that come to mind. Yeah, and this is a conversation you probably had with a bunch of your portfolio companies, but if I'm a game trying to build on top of blockchain, like how do I decide who to work with? Like, what do I care about even to be making that decision? Like what the primary considerations around chain selection are? Yeah, exactly. I think first, you probably want to make a decision around whether you want to be in the Ethereum ecosystem or not, whether you believe that there's network advantages and liquidity advantages of being 
in Ethereum or whether you want to bet on something outside of Ethereum. So let's just start like the decision tree up top, right? So you go there. Let's say you want to go Ethereum. You're not going to want to build on Ethereum layer one because it won't scale. So then you want to decide whether you want to take a bet on zero knowledge rollups, which are newer frontier tech, probably like a zero knowledge EVM, like a mutable or well, mutable now with Polygon, but like really Polygon has been developing is in many ways the holy grail because it's fast with zero knowledge setups. The proofs are always available and you get a lot of shared liquidity across the broader Ethereum ecosystem, or whether you want to bet on something that's more performant today, which would be an optimistic rollup, depending on sort of throughput and technical challenges that you want to incur, that will influence your decision. Immutable is coming out with the implementation of Polygon CKVM soon. And I think we'll see sort of whether that drastically shifts how easy or hard it is to build on the ZKVM side and, and how it affects that calculus. If you decide that you don't want to be on EVM or on Ethereum, then the question is basically like, well, are you prioritizing, for example, the Move ecosystem, which has some sort of like inherent security guarantees and allows for more parallelization because of this object-oriented framework for the Move language, which just allows you to basically say, these transactions here are small transactions that I can process very quickly without sort of needing the entire chain to like all the validators to agree with me on. And then these are other transactions that are sort of very big value and have systemic consequences. And we need more buy-in here, right? So it's like, for example, if I'm moving something from two of my wallets, that should basically like instantly settle with no one doubting if there's anything malicious going on, right? Because it's like two things and it doesn't impact anyone else, right? Versus if I'm selling something, if I'm like depositing liquidity on Curve, right? Like that has implications to like everything that's attached to Curve. And so you should probably make sure that I have the liquidity and that it's doing the, you know, being done the right way and like all that stuff. And you just have to validate it more broadly, right? And so when you have an object-oriented language, you can sort of think about all the tokens individually and, and understand the implication or the relationship between all these different objects. And allegedly that allows you to parallelize transactions much better, although it's TBD how it works if you have most of your throughput or your demand going through transactions that are high value and you can't parallelize it, right? Basically, it's like when these things clog, when blockchains clog, they don't tend to clog because of a bunch of random little applications. They tend to clog because of like one big application that's driving a lot and like how much can you parallelize that? I don't know, right? But that would be some of the consideration there. For example, Solana has good performance, like uptime and it settles fast and it has low fees and so all that stuff. So yeah, it's a long discussion. I think we've published a research piece that's publicly available on the Move language. And we published a research piece on the zero-knowledge roll-up and zero-knowledge EVM developments in general that try to provide some perspective on it. And there's a lot to decide, right? Probably the last thing to cover would be developer experience, right? So documentation, how easy is it for you to figure out what you have to do and get in it? Yeah, makes sense. I guess regardless of where people shake out there, it's a big decision that people need to put proper time and effort to think through and think through what's appropriate for them. You mentioned financing in a prior conversation. Within crypto broadly, you know, it's generally tough to raise money right now. We're definitely on the bear market side of financing activity for startups. Are you seeing that across the blockchain gaming space as well? Or has it been more isolated? Or are you seeing that same trend play out? No, look, I think everything has been down a ton because of the impact of high rates on duration assets. And I think that any high growth or stage company just has a lot of duration and duration hasn't been in favor. Blockchain has been more impacted because 
the flow of capital was so much more aggressive. And I think like a lot of the LP capital that was deployed in the space was experimental effectively, right? Like we're going to like do this test and people are going to want to see more results before committing to the next fund and next one after that. And I think by consequence, it just makes it harder for funds to raise a ton before returning, like returning capital to investors, or at least like a little bit of capital to investors, because people don't know what to expect from the asset class, right? And so like when the market dips, I think the baseline interest is lower. And so like that has an outsized impact, especially when you had so much activity during the bull market. And so I don't think that it's like a blockchain issue as much as everything else. For example, I think a lot about that, you know, with the SEC being super aggressive on protecting consumers that lost all their money in crypto. And it's like, my dudes, have you looked at SPACs? <laughs> like, right? Like most SPAC charts look like a bad crypto chart. Like there's just a phenomena of high duration assets being super high priced out of the gate, attracting primarily speculative capital that isn't sticking around right now. And there's no institutional demand. There's like low institutional demand. And so I don't think of it too much as a crypto specific issue. The only thing that it is more crypto specific about it is this idea that it's hard to go to someone and point like, here's this major consumer application that is totally working and like why you just like have to have conviction, which you can do with traditional video games and you can do with like even normal VC. You can be like, look, like someone financed WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram, nah, 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 and you don't have that with crypto yet, unless you start going into DeFi and some of these things. And most people have no idea what DeFi is to begin with. And so it's harder to point to the success case yet. But I think the issue of demand for duration assets is a broad issue that extends well beyond crypto. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So if I'm a gamer, I think all this sounds really cool. And like, hey, I should go play some blockchain based games. Are we at a stage where these games have had time to these studios have had time to build really high quality games and have them out there and playable? Or are we still kind of more in the game development phase? Where are we from that perspective? And to the degree that maybe a lot of these are still being built, when do you expect to see more of these like really high quality, more AAA blockchain based games launch? Yeah. So usually it takes easily two years to build a game if it's something like a simpler game and four, six, eight years to build AAA type game. And if you think about the developers in crypto, you know, two years ago, Luna was still alive, like right around there, right? Like FTX was a year ago and Luna was what, six months before FTX. And you couldn't market your game on the Google store and you couldn't distribute your game on the app store either. Epic Games wasn't necessarily eager to let you launch your game there. So everything like has changed and it frankly has changed for the better, right? Like you have access to traditional distribution. Now the market has been cleared of some nefarious actors. And I think there's a little bit more stability. And so, so much has changed in the last two years. And that's just like the baseline time that you would have expected someone to be building a game in. And so I always get a little frustrated when people are like, oh, like, how come we don't have amazing games yet? It's like, it's just not enough time. And people have been conditioned to think that this is going to be super, super fast. Whereas for us, the amount of time that these things have taken seems pretty normal. We're starting to see interesting alpha and beta gameplay. Midnight Society in our portfolio, there's ample footage on YouTube with good streamers and people playing and like there's an interesting game being built there. Outside of our portfolio, Gunzilla and Shrapnel have had exciting demos. Metalcore in our portfolio has had some exciting demos. 
Horizon Blockchain Games has a game called Skyweaver. That's a trading card game, but like it's a good game. Like it's not a double A shooter, or whatever. But it's like you go, you play the game, it's a good game. So we're seeing more and more of these things. I think next year we're probably going to see the first very compelling betas. Maybe not a full release, but maybe a full release towards the end of the year. But like the kind of beta that any Web two gamer could go on Epic, I guess, and download it and play it and just think that they're playing an awesome game without having to sort of make allowances for the fact that it's a crypto game. Awesome. So the most important question of the day, if you are not doing investing for a living, how would you spend your time and how would you make money? And you can't say horse riding because while your family might disown you otherwise, that'd be the obvious answer here. So let's go for something else. (laughs) Probably love to try figuring something out in the arts. I love art. My girlfriend and I, that's our main thing as a couple. Basically my wife, I guess, but it's maybe like what we've done for the last four years that we've lived together is go to auction houses and track prices and just treat it like a market. And maybe that's just like me giving you an investing answer through the back door of being like, how do we invest in art? But yeah, probably like interior design and art and that sort of like creative visual journey in the arts that still has like a strong markets component to it. And like, it's an inefficient market and you can like track it and like all that stuff. I think was probably where I'd like to be spending time. Do you have any art skills personally? I think so. I think, you know, I have some friends that are happy to have my art in their homes. I have some of my own art in our homes, so. Okay, well, I'll have to ask them offline for their honest assessment. Yeah, but. <laughs> absolutely. Awesome. So folks want to learn more about BitCraft or follow you guys online or follow you personally, where can they find you? www.bitcraft.bc for our website. And then I'm on Twitter, C-E-G-A, Pedata. BitCraft has a Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever. We're easy to find, honestly. But the website is really dope. We just got a new website and everyone should check it out. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Carlos. Really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate you being here. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website, www.hutcapital.com. 